on this earth. For each one here this morning, if we are honest with ourselves, are weak and we are frail. And this morning, as we learn from your holy word, you are a God who is merciful, who is compassionate, who is gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are a God who takes delight in these things. And yet, even as we learn in your word, you are also a God who is just. And you judge righteously all those in the earth. And one day, all will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for their lives. What they have done in the body, whether good or evil, and on that day, whom will stand. The only ones who will stand are those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore are clothed in his righteousness and not in our own righteous deeds. And so as we think about this sermon this morning, as we think about this reality this morning, Father, would you impress it upon our hearts even as we go out into the world and proclaim the gospel? That those who are lost, that those who are enslaved to their sins, to those who are under the condemnation and sentence of a righteous God, might we proclaim your mercy and grace to send the Lord Jesus Christ in order that we might be restored to fellowship with our great God. It is you that we worship this morning. It is you that we enter into fellowship with this morning. And it is in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, this morning we are coming to our end in the study on the nature and attributes of God. And I trust that it has been a valuable study for you. The plan, Lord willing is that we will finish up our study on the nature and being of God the Father this week. And then next week, Brian C. is preaching for me. And then we will have one final sermon in this series on the work and person of the Holy Spirit. One sermon. You can pray for me on that. Not sure it's possible, but we are going to try. And then in October, Lord willing, we will begin our journey through the gospel of Luke. But before we bring our study of God's nature and attributes to a close this morning, there are two aspects of God's nature that I want to cover, and we find it in our last kind of statement and phrase in our articles of faith. Remember, the articles of faith have been guiding us through this study. Article 3-1 on the person of God the Father, we read this, you can find it on the insert in your bulletin, there is but one living and true God, imminent, transcendent, infinite in being and perfection, pure spirit, invisible, immutable, eternal, almighty, all wise, most holy, most free, most loving, most gracious, most merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, 
the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, he will by no means clear the guilty. We are going to try to cover that last portion in this article, mostly because those ideas are so perfectly summed up in our text for this morning. What we find in Exodus chapter 34 is that our God is most merciful and gracious and with all just. Notice that with me this morning as we seek to unpack these two realities in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 4, says this, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, Notice, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst for us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The last verse this morning is going to be important for us to establish the context of these verses. But the first thing I want to notice here in this text is that God proclaims his name to Moses. What we notice in this text is that God's name is equivalent with his nature. The name of the Lord, which he repeats twice in verse 6, communicates to us again that God, that is Yahweh, cannot be separated from His character. God is who He is, and He is always who He is. He will never cease to be who He is. And God reveals Himself to us through His holy and inspired Word. And in our text this morning, he reveals to us two important aspects of that nature, which are then put together with all the other aspects of God's nature that we have looked throughout uh, this study together. And what we notice here is that God is most merciful, gracious, patient, and loving, but he is also just. Beloved, God is both of these things at once. Might I say, God is all of these things at once. For God is a simple being, and He cannot be otherwise. Therefore, His grace and His mercy work in perfect harmony with His justice, and His love with His judgment, and so on and so forth. 
But we see these two aspects this morning in the conjunction that is found in verse 7 of chapter 34. Notice it with me this morning. The text says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That seems to present a dilemma to you. It's because it does, and we will Look at that dilemma a bit at the end of our sermon. But before we do that, let's take these two ideas as they are summed up in these verses. And the first that we're looking at this morning, if you're following along in the insert in your bulletin, is that God is most merciful and most gracious. Would you bring me my water there? God is most merciful and and most gracious. Excuse me. The first thing I think we need to do this morning is to define God's mercy and grace. They are two attributes of God that work in conjunction with all else that we have learned about God so far. Remember, God knows all things about his creature and creatures and infinitely so, and therefore he is free to exercise his mercy and grace towards them. Not because of any obligation that he has to them, but because he is good. And it is this freedom to act on humanity's behalf, in spite of our desert, that makes God's mercy so unfathomable. The very heart of mercy is taking pity upon those who have nothing to offer in return. And grace is God extending Himself to those who do not deserve the blessings of God and His presence forevermore. Beloved, if it were not for God's mercy and grace, we would be in a most terrible predicament. And these attributes are what God leads with in the context of these verses. And I think that is important for us to note. Moses asks God to reveal himself to Moses in Exodus 33:13, And God leads with his mercy and grace. Now this is very significant for us to consider. You see, we have looked at many of God's majestic attributes. We've looked at His sovereignty. We've looked at His almightiness. We've looked at His transcendence. We've looked at His infiniteness. We've looked at His holiness and His freedom, all things that are true about God, but could also be misconstrued as seeing God as a distant and far-off deity. Take, for example, Psalm 115, verse 3. It says, Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that pleases Him. Now, we might read a passage like that and think that God has no concern for men and women 
and children. That he is some cosmic juggernaut mercilessly disposing of his creatures as he sees fit with no respect to their hardships or plights. But what we find in the scripture is that God certainly does all that he pleases in both the heavens and the earth. And hear this, brothers and sisters, it pleases God to show mercy. Let me say that one more time just so that it sinks into our minds and our hearts and our souls. God does all that he pleases in both the heavens and the earth, and it pleases God to show mercy. Not that it doesn't please God to reveal his glory. Certainly it does. But God is glorious because he is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and just and majestic and eternal and so on and so forth. But what we learn throughout the text of scripture is that our God desires and delights in showing mercy, compassion, and grace to his creatures. Listen to Micah chapter 7 verse 18, which you can find on the insert in your bulletin. It says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fathers of mercies and God of all comforts. Thomas Watson, in his commentary on this text, says this, and you can find the quote on the insert in your bulletin, says, God is more inclined to mercy than wrath. Mercy is his darling attribute, which he most delights in. It is significant that when God reveals himself, he reveals himself as taking pleasure and delight in showing mercy, but no pleasure in punishing the wicked. Notice with me in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. He says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his ways and live? And this is no isolated case. God says elsewhere, further in Ezekiel 18, verse 30 and 32, but then and again in Ezekiel 33, verse 10 and 11, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgression and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, 
I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? We learn about our God in this text and in many others is that at the heart of God's being is a desire to show compassion to those who find themselves in a pitiable state. God is not so removed that he is cold to humanity. No, God is passionate to save. And he seeks those who are lost. Luke chapter 19 verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We learn about our God this morning is that our God is merciful. And to show that God is a loving and compassionate God, He often describes Himself as a shepherd to His people. We see this in Psalm 78, 52 and 80 verse 1. Isaiah 40, 11, Jeremiah 31, 10, Ezekiel 34, 11, 12, and 23. And he even calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10, verse 11 and 14. God desires to lead his sheep. God desires to tend to their, to their wounds, to show compassion and mercy upon them. We know this. From that often quoted poem from David in Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3. One that I trust you've memorized in your time in God's Word. It it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. We hear of God's mercy in the prophet Isaiah's description in Isaiah 40 verse 11. Where it says, He, that is Yahweh, will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Here's the point. Our God, hear this. Our God is not some capricious divine despot, ruling from his throne on high and dismissing the needs of his people. Like a shepherd, our God walks with us. He tends to our wounds. He guides us with a gentle and loving staff. And maybe there are some of you here this morning that needs to hear that freshly. Maybe there are some of you here this morning that needs to hear that God looks down from our high, on high and He sees our suffering and He sees what we are going through and He cares for us. Maybe some of us need to hear this morning that word from the Apostle Peter who says, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Because God is rich in mercy, He extends His gracious hand to us. Grace is that attribute of God 
that does good to us even in spite of our unworthiness. Grace and mercy seem to be like two sides to the same coin. God looks down upon the inhabitants of the earth and He has compassion for them and therefore He commits Himself to their salvation even though they deserve His wrath. That's mercy and grace. God's mercy and grace work in conjunction with God's goodness and God's love and patience work in conjunction with His mercy and grace. And we see this harmonious reality in our text for this morning. Notice it with me, Exodus 34, verse 6. I love the way the Lord is described in this passage and how He relates to His creatures. It says, The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, hear this, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, how far, beloved, are we from the nature and being of God? How easily irritated and aggravated we are at those around us and our children and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How much do we need the Lord Jesus Christ to take up residence in our own hearts in order that He might work His mercy and grace through us to those who are around us. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Beloved, this must be the case. You see, if we are enemies of God, because of our constant rebellion and sin, the only response that God could have towards us is love or wrath. Now, wrath we deserve. Love we do not. Love is God committing to Himself in covenant faithfulness to our ultimate well-being. And we do not deserve such a commitment. And yet God is faithful to us. God exercises love and mercy and grace towards us and towards fallen sinners. And what I love in this text are the descriptors that God places on the exercise of His mercy and grace. He says, He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. John MacArthur said this on God's long-suffering. He says, God's long-suffering speaks of His being perfectly placid in Himself and toward sinners in spite of their continual disobedience and disregard for His warnings. God does not lose His temper, but rather acts calmly with proper affection according to His eternal sovereign plan. I love that description of God being slow to anger. 
God is like a placid lake undisturbed by any foreign object. It is not as if our contrary attitudes and actions disrupt God. God is not the frazzled parent at the end of his rope because of the behavior of his creation. God does not necessarily react to the actions of men like we react. And for each parent who have had their fair share of regrettable reactions, I trust that this is a welcome reality to us all. What the text reveals to us this morning is that God is a patient and long-suffering God who is committed to his creation because he possesses steadfast love. It's who he is. And I trust that this would have been a welcome revelation to Moses and to the people of Israel, even as it should be to us this morning. Remember the context of this verse in Exodus chapter 34. Just previously, in chapter 32, just two chapters before this, Israel has constructed for themselves a golden calf to worship and to bow down to. It also seems that these people have given themselves over to the gluttonous and debauched worship practices of the pagan people that they have just been delivered from and are mocking the worship of the true God by imposing His image upon this golden calf. And if that makes the back of the hair on my back stand up, I can't imagine what God was thinking at this moment. Just listen to it in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, if you notice in your text, I imagine that word Lord is in all caps because it is the name Yahweh. It is the covenant-keeping name of God, the God of Israel. And Aaron says that we will attach the name of our God to this golden calf 
and we will worship him. Verse 6, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Just so we're sure, these are the very same Israelites who saw the ten plagues that the God of Israel brought upon the Egyptians because they would not let his people go. These are the very same people who saw their own firstborn sons spared from the angel of death because they followed the Lord's instruction in the Passover. These are the very same people that witnessed the parting of the Red Sea and who passed over on dry ground and who saw the Lord swallow up their enemies as the flooding water came in behind them. These are the very same people who have been led without fail by the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And it would seem that it is these very same people who have just received the Ten Commandments, of which they have at least broken three in the worship of the golden calf. And they've even seen the severity of the Lord's judgment in the smoke, thunder, and lightning on the mountain. Beloved, these Israelites received provision after provision from the Lord God. And it is to this kindness and mercy and grace that they fashion a golden calf and they bow down and worship it. And they affix the name of the Lord to a lifeless, worthless, and stiff idol. This is why Moses responds to God's compassion and mercy in in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 34 the way that he does. Notice what Moses does when God reveals his character to him. It says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. It is to these stiff-necked people that God reveals himself as the most merciful and gracious one. As the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It is to these insufferable idol worshipers that God proclaims his love and mercy, and even who will one day send to them a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You see, throughout the Old Testament, we find story after story of Israel clamoring after other gods and denying the God of their fathers. And therefore, this word from the Lord in Exodus 34 verse 6 should have been a balm to the festering wound of their rebellious hearts. To hear that God is a merciful God and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love should have been a relief 
to these incessant idolaters. And it should be a relief to us. Because here's the question that each one of us should be asking ourselves at this point in this message. Do you see yourself in Israel? For in the flesh, we are all too similar to those worshipers of golden calves. Beloved, in our natural self, we are also insufferable idolaters. In the flesh, we are more like Israel than not like Israel. In spite of all that God has done for us, the innumerable blessings that we have received, even in Christ, we still tend to complain of our own station in life. We complain about God's distance and absence in our situations, even though we have learned, and I have learned, throughout our study, that God is always near to us and that God knows everything that we are going through. And instead of responding to the Lord in worship, we tend to take matters into our own hands. We fashion our own idols. We produce our own gods and we give them the saving power that only God alone has. Beloved, anything you give your heart and allegiance to as that thing that can save you from your plight is an idol. In the natural man, we are idolaters, and idolaters must be punished. God cannot endure our rebellion and sin forever. God must punish the wicked. Notice from our text this morning that God is not only merciful and gracious, but that He is also just. If you're following along in your insert in your bulletin, that's your second fill-in for this morning. Our God is with all just. Notice with me in verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, what we learn about God is that it pleases Him to extend mercy, that God desires to grant forgiveness toward iniquity, transgression, and sin through His prescribed means, and that God desires for men to be saved. But that should not lead us to believe that God will not punish sin for those who persist in it. God is a just God. And He must deal with unrighteousness. And He does so objectively. That is to say that He punishes sin on the basis of how each one of us individually respond to his law. This is the sense behind the phrase, 
which may be confusing for some of you, which I hope to briefly explain this morning. This objective standard of judgment is behind this phrase, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The point here is not that God punishes children for the sins of their fathers. That would be the opposite of objective justice and would be contrary to other texts like Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. The point here is that each successive generation will be judged individually for the sins they commit. They cannot excuse their actions because of learned behavior. They must respond themselves to what God has revealed to them. For example, a man cannot say, well, my father was absent from my childhood, and that is why I'm absent from my child's life. What the text is intending to get at here, beloved, is that we will not be able to blame others for our own sin. We must own it. We must respond ourselves to the revelation of God that calls all men to be an integral part of the upbringing of a family. The point of this text is that God judges and he judges justly. Listen to it in Psalm 9 verses 7 through 8. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Every man and woman will have to give an account of their lives before God. And they will not be able to foist the culpability of their actions upon someone else. Beloved, we must all stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for our lives, whether we have done good or evil. And we see this in Romans chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. As we look at the justness of our God with all men. Romans chapter 2 verse 12 says this. Romans chapter 2 verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. 
on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And I trust that you see that this presents to us a dilemma. If God desires to show mercy, as we have seen, if God delights in his steadfast love, if God desires to exalt the magnificence of his grace in extending forgiveness to sinners, but at the same time cannot allow the sinner to go free, how can he forgive and judge at the same time? For forgiveness is the opposite of judgment, and judgment is the opposite of forgiveness. How can God be just and the justifier of the ungodly? And what we find at the heart of the gospel is the solution to this problem. How can God be just and still forgive sinners? Rebellious sinners. Sinners like Israel and like us. Notice it with me in Romans chapter 3. Just the next chapter in your Bibles, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Hear this. For all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What we learn in the gospel is that God extends mercy and grace to sinners like us in His Son, Jesus Christ. That in Christ we might be forgiven because in Christ God's justice is satisfied. And that as we trust and believe in His work on the cross, we too can have our sins forgiven because the penalty for our sin has been done away with, nailed to the cross. And God expended His wrath on sin upon His Son in order that we might be set free. But more than that, beloved, not only did God deal with the penalty of our sin, but He also dealt with that persistent power of our sin. So that those who trust in Christ 
can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law as they trust in him. So that we no longer, hear this, have to be like Israel. So that we no longer have to be obstinate and stubborn in our sins. But as we look to Christ and the work that he has done on the cross and in the resurrection, and we exercise perpetual faith in what he has done, not only are we declared righteous before a holy father, but we begin to resemble even our brother and friend. For Jesus Christ has come and he has dwelt within the hearts of those who believe. And he is continually working in us and through us. And he is continually calling us to more obedience to him. Delightful obedience to him. As we trust in what Christ has done. Beloved, you no longer, nor could you ever atone for your sin. You no longer, nor could you ever possess the power to walk in absolute righteousness to God's commands. But in Christ Jesus, we have all these things. And on that day when he returns, and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our lives, We will say, beloved, we are covered by the blood of the Lamb and our robes are as white as snow. I trust that you believe that this morning. I trust that you will not stand before a holy and righteous God on the basis of your own works and your own righteousness. And if you haven't, trusted in Christ this morning. He is calling you. Come. Believe in Him. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Your grace and mercy towards us. What a marvelous reality this is. Even as, our, even as we each deal with that persistent enemy, that old man, the flesh, who continually desires to resume his position of sovereign in our hearts and in our lives, as we continually fight against our own anxieties, and our own fears. Father, I pray that we would come to you, for you are a God who is merciful. You are a God who possesses infinite mercy and grace. You are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so, Father, this morning, as we come to worship you, as we come to sing, may the words hit us in a fresh way that we might sing of the mercies of our God, that we might sing of the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Press us upon our hearts this morning, and we pray this in your name.
Amen. Would you join us now as we sing a very fitting song this morning, Christ, our hope in life and in death. John 10, verses 28 to 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. 